Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And thanks to Chris Gaffney for Great Voices. It's Jan Bartlett and it's just after four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday home time until 5.30. Today, 70 years on, they still go bang, referring to unexploded ordinances that are left behind in the Pacific. We're speaking with Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher. The political witch hunt, which people call it now, at Sydney University continues. I'll be speaking with Paul Duffield, who's a, a visiting scholar at the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at Sydney Uni. Palestinian refugees, the second part of my interview with Yusuf Al-Ramawi, human rights activist, translator and presenter of 3CR program, Palestine Remembered. But first, let's hit it off with Mr Kevin Healy. He's got over Anzac Day to see what the problem is for him now. A week, Jane Lister, when the latest crisis to hit the budget bottom line, the delicate flower that is the economy, is weak wage growth. Personally, can't see the problem. That's easily fixed. But seriously, it is a problem, isn't it? Wage increases are a major threat to the economy, and non-wage increases are a major threat to the economy. It's such a delicate flower. Thank goodness we have all those experts to analyse it all, do the job for us. Like that US of the UN of the US of the world, multi-multinational paragon of virtue, Goldman Sachs of it, which warned True Blue Aussie could lose its AAA rating unless we can control blowout government spending. We must heed this warning, economic guru Joe Hackey, the workers responded. We can't risk losing our AAA rating. Uh, Yes, why is that important, Joe? Uh, That's why I'm an economic guru, because a AAA rating allows us to borrow at the lowest possible rate. Uh, So you're planning to borrow big time? No, no, we can't do that. Uh, Why not? Because we'd lose our AAA rating. Hang on, hang on, Joe. You're saying we need the AAA rating to borrow, but if we borrow, we lose it. Ah, yes, yes, that's how economics works. That's why I'm the economic guru. These ratings, of course, are the product of the ratings agencies like Standard Your Pause We're Not and Muddies, who sprang up under neoliberalism from who knows where. Well, they'd know from where because they know everything. They're the true economic gurus, reading the portents and advising governments and great corporates how to get the best rating so they can borrow and lose the best rating. Yes, so how come you not only didn't predict the global financial crisis, but gave the highest rating to companies that hit the wall the next day? Ah, come on, you can't pin that on us. Through an inadvertent error, for which we can't be blamed, the teacups got mixed up. We read the wrong tea leaves that week. Last week's mass mass media coverage of the event which honed our true blue Aussie values wasn't quite matched this week in celebrating May Day. If not quite matched, could be interpreted as 8,000 pages give or take last week and leading up to and subsequent and not a line. Well, that's big time not quite. 
The Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin did cover the big, big weekend event both leading up to and yesterday. Lots of human beings racing a steam engine. And even given the advances in technology, the Lord Rupert team conducted the fastest and no doubt the most comprehensive national survey ever undertaken. Royal Cutie against a red background. Maybe that was their reference to May Day. The world has welcomed a new princess and true blue Aussie has already fallen in love with her. They must have worked their guts out Sunday to find that out. And to think, I can't speak for you, but to think I had no idea I'd fallen in love with this one-day-old new burden on the taxpayers until Lord Rupert told me. I think it's for the best, though, isn't it, that we let Lord Rupert think for all of us. And, well, the International Workers' Day only serves to remind us how evil and lazy and avaricious unions and workers are. Before we leave Lord Rupert, the principled consistency of the week award to his usual suspect lackey colonist and the tiny a bit more for the boss's appointment to the Human Rights Commission from the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs after SBS sacked a journo for private comments about ANZAC about celebrating trained killing after the Minister for Free Speech Malcolm Tun of Bull complained the journo had exercised the wrong sort of free speech. And the other pair, the Lord Rupert usual suspect and the commissioner who would defend to the death the usual suspect's right to free speech after a court knocked him off on the specious grounds that what he wrote was totally untrue, he's got a right to tell lies. But this week they both righteously defended Malcolm and the SBS board and said this non-jingoistic journo got what he deserved. Andrew and Tim, your principled consistency of the week award is on the way. On non-class war, we all know how lazy, avaricious workers egged on by evil trade unions rob, exploit and take advantage of their caring employers. Well, at last, a small light at the end of. When former Queensland Rail was privatised by the previous Socialist government, the new owner, All Rise and Profits, was settled with this condition that workers' wages and conditions and jobs would be safe. And All Rise and Profits agreed, but sensibly, because workers' wages and conditions are a major threat to enterprise and efficiency, the now super-efficient rail continually appealed against the impediment, explaining it could be super-super-efficient if it wasn't for the wages and conditions, and all those workers with whom it was saddled. Thankfully, last week, the Fair Work, True Blue Aussie, No Longer Work Choices Just Looks Like It con mission agreed, terminating enterprise agreements containing the bench said, inefficient and unproductive work practices imposed on the company. 69 workers would be immediately sacked. Sorry, sadly let go. But as the con mission pointed out, employees who do not have a productive role will be sacked. While unfortunate, redundancy is not unusual. Indeed, it is a usual element of any restructuring of enterprises that operate in a competitive market. Thank goodness there's no competitive market for commissioners, and doubtless caring employers would assert this decision is the height of productivity. All rise and profits hailed the common sense decision, paving the way for agreements to be torn up whenever caring employers feel the weight of worker persecution. This is a landmark decision. Big surprise.
female lance the workers Hockridge gloated. Not only for Horizon profits, but in the broader context for True Blue Aussie industrial relations. May have been a bit lucky, because the caring employers keep telling us there's only one decent commissioner on the commission, a sensible appointment from the caring employers. In other words, unbiased, unlike all those raving socialist-socialist appointments. Who wouldn't know balance if they fell over it, even though falling over would mean they didn't have it, which they haven't. This decision shows yet again how caring employer appointments to the commission are so even-handed. Lance, the workers, looked very pleased with himself. Following the Indonesia and other people's business state murder of eight people, including two true blue Aussies, Big Supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, was righteously angry. It's important that we express our objections in the strongest possible terms in the strongest possible terms. Uh, so we'll sever all economic and trade ties, Tony. Not quite that strongest possible. Now, so how strongest possible? We will bring our ambassador home for consultation. Uh, and how does that hurt Indonesia in? How does... Will it... Uh, uh, sorry, could you repeat the question? On that, we must congratulate our mainstream media for squeezing every ounce of macabre blood out of the story, including reporting the insensitive trauma added to the family and friends by a media scrum on the men's last day. Each media naturally declaring itself innocent of any insensitivity. It was the others. The only story they missed as they described the mourning and gnashing of teeth in morbid detail on the night was the one big celebration. The party they threw down at the federal... Sorry, a cop's office, toasting another big success, with former Big Supremo Mick Pontius Kilty them performing the ritualistic washing of the blood from his hands. Families and friends of the murdered were assuaged and felt so much better about the whole thing when the Indonesia Inn ambassador expressed his sympathy. They probably would have felt a hell of a lot better if he didn't have to. Over in Baltimore, hundreds of people were arrested by police for protesting about the police, suggesting they too had blood on their hands because a black man arrested in a healthy state emerged from the arrest with a fatal broken spine. Pretty flimsy evidence to conclude the police had something to do with it. Perhaps they could consult great multinational security giant G4 More Profits, who have patented the art of roasting true blue Aussie terra nullius people in the back of vans. The arrests were understandable. One protester had the gall to suggest the... Oh, sorry, I've done it again, sorry. Protected property and not people. Windows can be replaced... The people they kill cannot. She showed what an evil woman she is. I think the US old police should be praised for their compassion because finally they prevent lots of people from spending 10 years or more on death row with its accompanying mental torture. Shoot them humanely first for heinous crimes like walking in the street. Blacks, that is, but, but black is synonymous with crime, bad, evil. Police is synonymous with good, care, humanity. Well, suppose they're human, although it's not a given. Good afternoon. And that, of course, was Mr Kevin Healy. And if you'd like to hear more, it's 9 o'clock tomorrow morning until 10 with his program, City Limits. The 
the recent devastating earthquake in Nepal has caused a massive loss of life and rendered a large number of people injured and homeless. The Nepalese Earthquake Relief and Welfare Committee is providing vital support to the relief operations in Nepal. They are appealing to all Victorians for support and assistance. You can help by providing financial support, working as a volunteer, or by promoting the appeal on social media. For more information, go to 3cr.org.au or check out the Facebook page, Victorians Stand Together for Nepal. Seventy years on, things still go bang. With me is journalist and researcher Nick McClellan, and we're talking about unexploded ordinances from World War Two. Can you set the scene for the Pacific during World War Two? One of the striking things about the Second World War was that the Pacific Islands, which are often seen as marginal to the main game in Europe, were a major battlefield. The expansion of Japan's empire throughout the northern Pacific, throughout Micronesian countries like uh, Guam, Nauru, the Marshall Islands, Kiribati, heading south, obviously, uh, reaching Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands um, as the southernmost surge of Japanese forces. The real clash of empire with the United States at that time, the US set up military bases across the southern Pacific from Bora Bora in French Polynesia through New Caledonia, where over nearly half a million US troops cycled through New Caledonia during the war, and, of course, in Australia, in Townsville and other places. And the Americans fought their way through the islands, firstly at Guadalcanal in 1942 and on north to the Marshall Islands uh, and then to Palau and other places, uh, Iwo Jima, many of the islands, basically island-hopping their way towards Japan. And for the Pacific Islanders themselves, some of whom had lived under Japanese occupation for many years uh, in terrible conditions in places like Guam and Nauru, others um, who had uh, welcomed the Japanese uh, to a certain extent uh, in overthrowing colonial empires by France and Britain, they were at the receiving end of this massive military assault where basically the US bombarded the islands to drive out the Japanese forces before landing marines. And often they got it wrong. In Tarawa, for example, in the main island of Kiribati today, the independent republic of Kiribati, they got the tide charts wrong. And the marines that were sent ashore um, after a massive naval bombardment got stuck on the reef at low tide and had to wade 600, 700 metres through the shallows against Japanese machine guns and were devastated, thousands of people killed on, on Tarawa. It's a terrible war. And after that experience of stuffing up the invasion of what's today the Republic of Kiribati, the Americans preceded their assaults with massive naval and air bombardments. So by the time they'd got to the Republic of Palau, which is further to the east, closer to the Philippines, another Micronesian island chain, they blew the shit out of the place before they sent any Marines nearby. So the island of Peleliu, which is a major battleground in World War II in September 1944, the American Air Force dropped 2,000 tonnes worth of weapons on Peleliu, which is a pretty small island, another couple of hundred tonnes fired by naval shells. 
uh, massive bombardment to try and drive the Japanese forces out of their bunkers and the caves that they were literally living in by that time, often starving because the US Navy had cut their supply lines. The problem is a lot of those shells, torpedoes uh, and other weapons didn't explode and have sat there for 70 years with uh, the explosive charge still in the metal casing um, and providing a hazard. And that uh, unexploded weaponry is known as unexploded ordnance, UXO in the jargon. It litters the Pacific. Now, this is a problem in world conflict zones everywhere. You know, Laos and uh, Vietnam still suffer from the massive bombardment they underwent uh, during the First and Second Indochina Wars with the American invasion of South Vietnam and, and uh, the bombardment of Cambodia, the bombardment of Laos. Afghanistan today littered with unexploded ordnance from the Russian war of the 1980s and 90s. But uh, for the Pacific Islands, there's not much place to run. And so this problem in places like Guadalcanal, in Peleliu, in Tarawa, is a serious problem for the Pacific because still more than 70 years after the, the war, people are still finding um, unexploded ordnance in places, in food gardens, on the coast where people go fishing, or in areas where tourists inhabit. And uh, not surprisingly, it's not good for tourism. Whose responsibility is it to clean up after war? Well, it is theoretically the responsibility of the armed forces that engage in it. But one of the problems is that the major combatants, in the Pacific case, the United States and Japan, have not budgeted for the clean-up. And this is not just uh, things like unexploded ordnance. Another problem is that there are large numbers of World War II ships sunk in the Pacific lagoons, famously Chuk Harbour. Chuk is one of the four states of the Federated States of Micronesia, another northern Pacific atoll nation. The Americans bombarded a Japanese fleet or part of a Japanese fleet that was headquartered at Chuk, and about 60 ships sank to the bottom of the lagoon. Now, many of those ships were filled with weapons, with artillery shells and bombs and so on, but also with large amounts of oil. And um, there's been an attempt by the FSM government to get both uh, governments those that had the ships and those that blew them up, to take responsibility for removing the oil from these ships because there have been a couple of oil leaks which have caused incredible damage to mangroves, to the coastal environment, obviously don't do much for the tourist beaches, and yet it's very expensive, $5, 10000000 million, to clean out the oil from these old submerged wrecks. And so these legacies of war from decades and decades ago are still affecting, obviously, the environment but also the potential livelihoods and well-being of people who stumble across them. Talk about some of the islands, the people living there now. How do they cope? Well, for example, last year I, I visited Peleliu, which is this uh, northern one of the northern islands of Palau, today the Republic of Palau. It's a small country, only about 16,000 people. It's located in Micronesia, the islands in the North Pacific, closer to the Philippines. And there's a small team there from a British NGO uh, called clear ground demining that's training local Palauan young people, there were about 30 trainees, to firstly identify, then locate and ultimately remove unexploded ordnance from around Peleliu. There was a Japanese airstrip on Peleliu during the war and it was massively bombarded by the, uh, the US Air Force. Today they want to use the airstrip to ferry tourists to outer islands and uh, set up a small airline business. But they've been ruled by the airline authorities that it's unsafe to do so 
because of the potential that people might um, stray. And so this team of young people uh, with a couple of British ex-army advisors are being trained to literally go on hands and knees and clear areas all around the airstrip to test the level of unexploded ordnance and gradually carve into the bush. And we're talking about jungle, you know, essentially, or thick bush um, surrounding the airstrip. And so people go in and create a path where they clear and then probe their way literally on hands and knees forward trying to find whether there's any bombs that are there. And I uh, spoke to the the team there, really interesting, meeting these young people who are all in their late teens, early 20s, and they were learning the hard way of how to do it and how not. As the the British guy uh, who was heading the team said to me, 70 years on, things still go bang. So it's pretty painstaking work. And in five years' work, this group had cleaned 32,000 objects. So 32,000 unexploded bombs, hand grenades, torpedoes and so on. And they put out a call to the community um, saying, have you got anything that looks like this uh, in your back garden? And about a third of the houses on Pelilieu rang up and said, oh, yes, we've got one of those, you know, we never quite sure what it was and, and things. And, of course, um, some of these are inert, um, but many of them still hold a significant explosive charge and if handled the wrong way can do significant damage to people. And so, you know, it's a, a slow and painstaking work this uh, NGO doesn't have the money needed to um, to do the work. So a lot of the work they're doing is about community uh, education, telling both local farmers and also tourists to watch out for these sorts of things and don't go near them. And uh, um, they give away a free T-shirt to people. Uh, people can identify and, and locate a, a shell and tell them about it. So it's a, a big project. And this is just one tiny island in one small country that faces this problem and when you really think about it it's a global when you think about the conflict uh, in in Iraq and uh, uh, Syria at the moment you hear about you know Australian planes bombing these countries and you think about the potential for unexploded ordnance now weaponry is a lot more sophisticated nowadays but sometimes still things don't go bang and they're going to sit there for future generations to face exactly the same problem when you say they find out the hard way, does that mean that people are losing their lives or losing limbs? There has been casualties in um, in uh, Palau uh, and in Solomon Islands. There's a tradition of uh, people in, in some countries, in PNG and Solomons, finding these things and trying to dismantle them to use to go dynamite fishing. There's a tradition <laughs> of catching fish by lobbing a, an explosive uh, into, the, into the water and catching the stunned fish. And uh, these old World War II shells are really useful for that sort of thing. But uh, if you do it wrong, you can blow your hand off. And there's many cases where that's happened. In other countries, uh, thinking particularly in Southeast Asia, under the American war um, in the 1970s and 60s, a country like Laos has terrible, terrible problems where agricultural land is just seeded with unexploded weaponry and cluster bombs and cluster munitions, old landmines and so on. And so there's been in recent years attempts to uh, develop uh, international treaties on landmines, on cluster munitions, to stop the spread of these weapons, knowing that even today we're creating new minefields uh, for future people to fall on. I can imagine people would be able to handle a hand grenade easily. What do they do if they find a big bomb? Well, it's quite a logistic exercise because often these things are sunk in mud or in uh, even un- underwater and, uh, you know, skin diver will come across it and so on. So um, that's part of the training process. There's elaborate systems of, uh, of checking 
these things of, you know, using cradles to pick them up gently, uh, but to transport them. It's painstaking and slow work, and part of it is making, therefore, a decision to leave some areas just out of bounds and to clear certain areas and make sure that they're, you know, 100% clear. And so there's some tough decisions. Uh, The people I spoke to in Palau, in Peleliu, for example, said, look, there's parts of the island we're just going to write off. Um, We just don't have the money, we don't have the time and staff to go and clear them. And so people whose land it is, even decades after the war, well, that's bad luck until governments like the United States or Japan pay up and to, to fund this sort of work, people are just going to have to live with this uh, this hazard. Are they then stored somewhere in a particular place? They're often blown up. Um, okay. People gather them, they're stored briefly, and then there's a controlled explosion to uh, to detonate them, clear the area. It's a fascinating process. I went out with the team, and these are young people, as I say, in their early 20s. Uh, I stood back <laughs> and let them do their work. Obviously, there's a local involvement. Uh, it provides employment for a team of young people. It allows the locals to go and talk to their communities and their community elders about the hazards. And uh, so it's a really interesting initiative um, run on a shoestring. But uh, this sort of work is going on in many countries in the Pacific Islands, in Papua New Guinea, in the Solomon Islands, in Kiribati, Marshall Islands, uh, and, and so on. Uh, just one of the other legacies of war and conflict beyond the things we've talked about often on the program, like the nuclear pollution from uh, uh, the detonation of nuclear weapons as well. The Pacific has suffered from the clash of empire um, over many years and, and still does. Have the people in that island lost a lot of their agricultural land or do they use that land for agriculture? One of the great focuses has been on clearing garden areas so that um, um, people can garden and you know have better nutrition by uh, growing their own food rather than relying on imported and processed foods. So that's a big part of the, the process, particularly a focus too on fishing grounds and tourism areas, clearing the reef of any unexploded ordnance on the coast so that certain beaches near major hotels uh, are guaranteed to be safe for people who are either fishing or uh, are doing it. And they rely on local fishermen to tip off the demining crew. There's a hazard somewhere that uh, needs to be acted on. When you say they often explode the ordinances, does that cause problems too with pollution? These shells are really old. and um, One of the things people told me was that there is... Uh, some hazards from the decaying shells, for example, the breakdown of some some of the old explosives used from the 1940s releases picric acid into the marine environment. So things that are sitting in salt water for 70 years, obviously they're rusting, but also some of the, the chemicals change inside and becoming inert, the explosives, they also release certain types of acid, one called picric acid, which is really hazardous to the coral and things like that. So look, this is an environmental hazard, this is a, a human hazard, uh, and this is a development hazard. In 2011, the Pacific Islands Forum formally declared that unexploded ordinance poses a serious obstacle to development. This is not just about the environment, but it's about people's livelihoods. If fisher folk and farmers can't uh, access the land and the marine environment safely, that's going to stop people growing their own food, developing their own economy. Once again, this major challenge. And I think... This is not just a World War II phenomenon. The same battle has gone on in uh, Hawaii. There's an island called Kaholawe, which is a, a small island, uninhabited for many years, off the coast of the main uh, island of Oahu. And Kaholawe became a battleground from the 1970s onwards because it had been used as a 
testing range, a weapons testing range by the US Navy for decades, really starting back after the Second World War. The US Navy has a major base at Pearl Harbor, uh, which is the operation head for the Pacific Command and for the US 7th Fleet, which operates across the Pacific region. And their warships regularly sailed past Kohalawe and fired weapons at it to test their accuracy and so on. And so that went on right through the 1950s and 1960s uh, into the 1970s. Indeed, countries like Australia that participated in US war games off the coast of Hawaii got involved in this process as well. In the uh, early 1970s, the US began a series called RIMPAC, the Rim of the Pacific Exercises. It's a massive naval engagement. Continues to this day. RIMPAC happens every two years, and you know thousands of ships and planes and troops and so on are deployed uh, to practice. You know, used to be the Russians in the good old days. Now it's the Chinese Navy who's uh, the the threat. And the Rim of the Pacific brings together Japan, New Zealand, Australia, and so on. And in the 1970s, local Hawaiian activist Kanaka Maoli, the indigenous people of Hawaii, said, "Enough is enough. This is our island." It has very important cultural sites and uh, uh, sacred sites on it, and it shouldn't be blown up. And so they started what they called sail-ins, where people under cover of darkness sailed onto the island, sailed canoes and went and hid on the island, and then their colleagues in Hawaii told the US Navy, you can't bomb this island during this exercise because there are people on it. And they had a series of land occupations and sail-ins, a number of people arrested, there's a, a very courageous man named Emmett Aluli, a man I knew in the 70s who was you know, leading this group called Protect Kahualavi Ohana, which is the, um, you know, the local Hawaiians felt that their culture was being disrespected every time a US Navy ship blew the shit out of this island. They were successful. They stopped the RIMPAC exercises and other naval exercises bombarding the island at some cost, some... Uh, Activists drowned on their way to try and get to the island uh, during these exercises to hold it. But um, they finally agreed that the US should convert the island into a national park. But then, of course, they had this problem of unexploded ordnance. And so for the last 20 more plus years, there's been an attempt to get the US Navy and the US Defence Department to fund the clean-up of Kahualave, and particularly to try and protect the petroglyphs and sacred sites that exist on the island uh, for the indigenous population. And how close to the coast of Queensland during World War II were ordinances dumped or weapons dumped in the sea? This is the other problem, not only on land but on sea. There were significant attempts to uh, get rid of munitions at the end of the war, and that's true of the First World War as well as the Second World War. You know, the war's over, there's a whole lot of unexploded stockpiles of unexploded bombs and uh, artillery shells, and that included things like chemical weapons. In World War One. people had mustard gas shells, for example, that were hazardous, and obviously with the decay of, of the metal casing over time, the potential for release of chemical weapons, of blister agents and so on, is there. And so often people dumped them in the ocean. For example, in September 1945 after the bombing of Hiroshima the previous month. The war was over. People took um, a whole lot of shells that were in uh, uh, Guadalcanal in the Solomon Islands, about 2,000, no, 4,000 tonnes of artillery shells, and they dumped them in the water off New Caledonia. The US had a major military base in Nomea, the capital of New Caledonia. 
And so they just took all this stuff. Rather than ship it all the way back to the United States, the war was over, people weren't focused on it, so they just dumped them in the ocean. And the US Army and the Australian Defence Force did similar things off uh, Cape Morton, which is in Queensland, particularly with chemical weapons munitions. Documents that that we found suggest that there was about 21,000 tonnes of munitions carrying chemical weapons, like lewisite and other chemical weapons, were dumped in the ocean off the Queensland coast near Cape Morton after the Second World War. 21,000 tonnes is an awful lot of artillery shells, and one thinks about what 70 years later... They're still there. They're still there, what that's doing to the marine environment. And so, you know, people think of this vast Pacific Ocean as this empty space, but um, it's been a laboratory for nuclear testing. It's been a place where people dumped hazardous and toxic wastes. The legacies of war litter land and ocean. After the testing of nuclear weapons at Mururoa and Fangatofa, the French were supposedly cleaning up Mururoa, and they gathered up a whole lot of contaminated soil and equipment and so on, put them in 44-gallon drums, filled them full of concrete so they'd sink, and just dumped them off the coast of Mururoa. Now documents have been revealed from the archives that there are two sites one with 2,400 tonnes of radioactive waste encased in concrete, the other uh, with 11,000 tonnes, just of drums filled with concrete and crap, radioactive crap, thrown into the ocean. Now, think of a 44-gallon drum, how long that's going to last in salt water. Think of how quickly concrete breaks down, and yet there's contaminated materials in it. Maybe not in my lifetime, but in, uh, in future lifetimes all that stuff's going to be released into the marine environment. And then you've got the British testing as well. Country by country, you can go through this. And uh, the obvious point is that the Pacific's been a dumping ground, but wars don't end. They say the war was over in August. Well, the war continues for many people through these legacies of conflict. Um, And when we think about what's happening in the Middle East today, think about not only the human trauma for people who've been injured or traumatised by the war, but the way in which the whole of Iraq is littered with unexploded ordnance, and it's going to be creating jobs for people to go out and try and clear areas of ground, clear areas where farmers run their sheep and their goats, uh, clear areas where people want to grow food. This is an ongoing legacy of every conflict from you know First World War to Vietnam to uh, what's happening in Iraq and Syria today. The arms manufacturers don't care. Um, and they leave it to local governments to bear the cost. Given Australia's role in the conflict in the Middle East at the moment, you know what responsibilities do we have for what our armed forces are doing for decades to come? And does anyone test the fish in the oceans to see the impact on them? There is a testing program um, in some areas. Uh, there's a lot of concern about uh, a range of uh, a potential contamination, People don't go fishing on Mururoa nowadays, for example, because um, after 30 years of the French government saying there were no radioactive hazards from the nuclear testing program, a study by the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, found that there's about 8 kilograms of plutonium scattered through the sediments of uh, the lagoon at Mururoa and Fangatofa atolls, about 5 kilos dispersed in tiny, tiny particles through the um, uh, marine environment and Mururoa, another three kilos at uh, Fangatofa. You wouldn't want to be ingesting fish from that environment. 
but it's been the the devastation of the nuclear industry. Think of Fukushima. Uh, the Fukushima accident destroyed the fishing industry in that coastline of, of Japan by the perception as much as the reality. And there's a lot of testing going on in Japan because of the nuclear power generation uh, breakdown and it's devastated fishing because uh, even if the fish aren't contaminated, the perception that it comes from that area will make it less market-friendly. And also right across to the Pacific, right to the US coast, they're finding remnants now. There's a lot of studies about the isotopes um, you know, that have been found uh, off the coast of California. And governments like the Federated States of Micronesia and others have protested to uh, Japan about this issue. There is uh, uh, some work being done by the SPREP, the South Pacific Regional Environment Program, which is the main technical agency working on environment programs. But people don't want to talk nuclear very much. Uh, it's uh, a bit of a taboo. Uh, and so these problems are very hard to get funding for. Governments are quite happy to do contemporary development work. And I think uh, one of the key messages, as I said, from the Pacific Islands Forum is that uh, these uh, are not purely environmental questions, but they affect people's livelihoods. And so they really are part of the development picture. You know, the link between conflict and damage to development, setting back people's development, is uh, a central part of the message that governments often don't want to talk about. And it's thanks once again to researcher and journalist... Nick McClellan, for his knowledge of the Pacific, it's just overwhelming for lots of people. It's 4.36 and you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR, 8.55 on your AM dial. It's 3CR. If you're digital, you can be listening online, 3cr.org.au. You can listen for up to a week for this program, any program, and then... It changes over for the next week or you can have the program sent straight to your computer for you to listen to whenever you have the chance. So it's 3cr.org.au. Today we're going to learn about H3O. Uh, Professor, if I'm not mistaken, H3O is the chemical compound hydronium. That's correct, Nelson, but it's also an exciting new formula. H3O is simply the addition of water and the subtraction of sugary drinks multiplied by 30 days. Ah, I see. And the results? You can kickstart weight loss, reduce health risks, reduce tooth decay, and save money. Take VicHealth's H3O Challenge and switch sugary drinks for water for 30 days. Find out more at h3ochallenge.com.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. Spoken by Richard Moss and Tim Potter. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Some people are calling it a, a political witch hunt against Sydney University academic Jake Lynch following a protest at a public lecture at Sydney University. Paul Duffield is a member of the staff at Sydney University for BDS and is also a visiting scholar at the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at Sydney University. I spoke with Paul this morning and asked him to recap 
what happened at that public meeting back in March. So in March, a retired British Army colonel by the name of Richard Kemp, he gave a speech at the University of Sydney speaking about, ostensibly speaking about the ethics of counter-terrorism warfare, talking about his experience in, I believe, Afghanistan, and um, he also mentioned Northern Ireland. But he's also very well known to be a supporter of the Israeli military's record in killing civilians, killing Palestinian civilians. He's quoted, you know, widely as saying words to the effect that no military in the world has made greater effort than the Israeli military in preventing civilian casualties. That topic was also touched on in his lecture as well. He expressed very strong support for the Israeli military's practices and policies regarding what he called very effective prevention of civilian casualties. Given that he was also referencing the Israeli military's assault on Gaza last year, which resulted in over 2,200 deaths, including the deaths of over 500 children, that was obviously very salient for people who were there to hear the event. So some minutes into his presentation, some protesters entered the room. One of them was speaking a moment on a megaphone brought to the audience's attention their concerns regarding that the university last year, University of Sydney last year, had actually barred a guy called Uthman Bada from appearing on campus. Sydney University Muslim Students Association had arranged an event where Uthman Bada would would speak on campus. University had actually barred Mr Bada from from appearing on campus. There was actually the main concern that the protesters at the Richard Kemp event were speaking about. And they spoke, I believe, for about one and a half minutes, including some heckling and doing from the crowd. And then the University of Sydney security staff were present and proceeded to forcefully remove them from the room. So I was at the event, I mean, sitting fairly close to the front. And this is also caught on some of the video footage that's been supplied to the media. I should be clear that I didn't support the protest and I didn't take part in the protest. Um, I was just in the audience. But we saw the University of Sydney staff, I think, in my, in my opinion, acting quite heavy-handedly in removing the students and other protesters from the lecture room. I believe the process of trying to remove them, so I took some time, maybe about 10 or 20 minutes of the lecture of these the university security staff trying to wrestle the protesters out of the room. I didn't see any of the protesters actually acting violent in any way. Some of them were just trying to resist attempts for the University of Sydney staff to physically remove protesters from the room. I work in the Centre of Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Sydney and Part of my conflict resolution training is I have a black belt in the non-violent martial art of Aikido that I obtained when I was living and studying in Japan, living and working in Japan. From my vantage point of watching the lecture, it seemed that University of Sydney staff were really quite undertrained to be able to forcefully and safely remove the protesters from the room. Um, and so that's a real concern for me. If you're going to try and forcibly remove someone from a room, You have to be really, really well trained. You have to be adequately trained to make sure that you can do that while not hurting the people that you're trying to move. So that was one of my concerns, that the University of Sydney staff didn't appear to have appropriate training. One of the other events that I witnessed, and that's actually been um, caught on video to some extent, is the physical assault of two University of Sydney staff members by a woman who's now been identified by the Australian newspaper as Diane Barkers, Ms. Diane Barkers. I saw her physically assault Associate Professor Jake Lynch, and also Associate Professor Jake Lynch's wife, Dr. Annabelle McGoldrick. Um, I was sitting actually right next to Dr. Annabelle McGoldrick. 
And so that was obviously a real concern as well. Um, I alerted security staff after I'd seen that. I asked the security staff that Ms. Diane Barker's be removed from the lecture theatre because I was concerned that she posed a physical threat to staff and students at the lecture theatre, given that I'd just seen her physically assault two University of Sydney staff members. That was the main event that I witnessed during the lecture. Um, there was also, was also an incident where Associate Professor Jake Lynch, following his assault by Ms. Diane Barker, has actually produced a $5 bill from his pocket. There's been a video footage of that that I've seen. A very short still photo of the video around the assault on Associate Professor Jake Lynch, first shown, I believe, by the Australian Jewish News on their Facebook page, which they claimed showed that Associate Professor Jake Lynch was waving money in the face of Jewish students. And that um, claim was um, picked up by a range of websites but has since been um, changed generally to be that he was showing the money to um, Jewish women in the audience. Of course, what actually happened, which unfortunately hasn't been reported, it has been reported very, very little, particularly by the organisations that are attacking Associate Professor Lynch over this, is that Associate Professor Lynch pr- produced this money from his pocket after he'd been physically assaulted by Miss Diane Barkers as an attempt to actually non-violently dissuade her from further violence. Now, I mean, I know that Diane Barkers had also physically assaulted Jake's wife as well, and um, Mr. Jake's attempt to try and dissuade Ms. Diane Barkers from further violence. So the fact that the claims have been made that this was somehow anti-Semitic or he was somehow waving the money in front of Jewish students is completely unhelpful and, of course, heavily distorted. And it's very disappointing to see that the organisations, the lobby groups such as the Australasian Union of Jewish Students we're calling for Associate Professor Lynch's sacking are actually not including that in their reporting of events, are actually excluding that information from events. So obviously it's very pertinent and very important if someone is actually under physical assault or has been under physical assault by someone. I mean, it's very disappointing myself and my colleagues that this information is being heavily distorted in a call to have Associate Professor Jack Lynch dismissed from his position. So that's sort of a summary of some, I guess, some of the more important events that um, I witnessed and are aware, or are aware of during the Richard Kemp lecture um, that happened back in March. And of course, the assault against Associate Professor Jake Lynch and his staff member was reported to police immediately afterwards as well. And the police, when police arrived on the scene immediately after the lecture, who called the police? Um, I don't actually know who called the police. Um, I just know that when I arrived outside the lecture theatre after the lecture, um, the police were there and then the assault against Lynch and his wife were uh, reported to the police at that stage. What's happened since then, Paul? Approximately a week after the lecture, University of Sydney released a statement on the, around the events. It was very disappointing that the University of Sydney, owned, of, of all the serious incidents that occurred at the event, the university chose to, to only mention the accusation of anti-Semitism there was no mention of the physical assault on two University of Sydney staff members. Um, and there was also no, no mention of what was witnessed. There was a witnessed an incident of anti-Palestinian racist attack that happened just before the lecture began that, that went unnoted by the University of Sydney administration. What was that? Um, I wasn't actually there in front of the event, but I believe it's been recorded on video and uh, my colleagues can inform me of what happened. Um, it was words to the effect that why are you protesting supporting Palestine, Palestine doesn't exist, and of course that was said within a few metres of the University of Sydney Palestinian students. Those sort of racist remarks I think are very serious. They need to be taken very seriously by the University of Sydney when they investigate incidents around things like the Richard Kemp lecture. Um, there was also another incident that occurred that was again re- again recorded on the video video of the event where the same woman, Ms. 
Diane Barkas, who physically assaulted Jake Lynch and his wife, Annabelle McGoldrick. Diane Barkas also threw water on a young Muslim student wearing a hijab. So that obviously presents a potentially Islamophobic attack as well. Again, it was very disappointing that the University of Sydney in their first statement regarding the, this event did not make any mention of that, excluded mention of all these incidents aside from the accusation of anti-Semitism. And the university has since cleared Associate Professor Jack Lynch of the accusation of anti-Semitism. So the fact that there's been a clear selection process among those who are criticising Associate Professor Jack Lynch and other pro-Palestine activists at the event is very concerning. And the fact that the university... Um, and their initial statement didn't mention any of these other serious incidents concerning for a number of my, for, for my colleagues as well. I understood that being charges of misconduct levelled against Jake and other students. I believe there has been a total of 15 letters that have been sent out to people in this, through the second stage of the investigation. So the investigation, as far as I understand it, has gone to a second stage. Um, Jake Lynch is the only staff member who has had a letter sent out to him regarding accusations on the second stage. There's also two contractors, University of Sydney security staff. There's also several students, and there may be members of the public as well. I'm not clear on that, and the University of Sydney hasn't publicly declared who of those approximately 13 students, or 13 people, sorry, have had letters to them following up on the second stage uh, in, in, in terms of um, still pursuing them for the second stage of investigation. So the truth is that we just don't know who those 13 people are, but we do know that there was only one staff member and that was Associate Professor Jack Lynch. And the university has cleared him on any accusations of anti-Semitism. However, they have stated that they are pursuing him on other accusations regarding the breach of the university's code of conduct. And this is the so-called independent investigation? Yeah, what we should really say is the so-called independent investigation continues. As I may have stated in you know, my previous interview with you a couple of weeks ago, myself and, and, and other people who are present at the lecture received correspondence from the university requiring us to take part in an investigation that the university claimed was independent and was being run by an external law firm. Now, unfortunately, the lawyer conducting the investigation, heading the investigation, lawyer by the name of Miss Jane Wright, subsequently emerged that she's actually an employee of the University of Sydney, or I should say is listed as an employee of the University of Sydney on the University of Sydney's website. Um, investigative journalism by Ian Higgins and the Australians confirmed that she has a desk and she has a telephone number um, and that she's recorded in the, in the um, University of Sydney um, staff registry. So the fact that she, is, she appears to be an employee of the University of Sydney is extremely concerning given that the University of Sydney you know, told myself and other people that we needed to take part in this external investigation and part of the investigation, thinking that it was an external investigation. Only after I took part in the interview where I found out that the lawyer interviewing me who was heading the investigation was actually not independent, not external, was actually an employee of the University of Sydney. With these charges now being laid, where does free speech, where is it in the University of Sydney? I think most people would say you've got to draw a line somewhere regarding for example, hate speech. You know, the University of Sydney shouldn't be promoting and shouldn't be supporting people engaging in hate speech. The key issue there is one of consistency and transparency. First of all, there needs to be a consistent definition of what exactly unallowed forms of speech are, for example, hate speech. And there also, that definition needs to be transparently applied. Now, unfortunately, with this very secretive investigation, you know, claiming to be external but 
unfortunately not. Those basic standards of consistency and transparency appeared not to be not, not to be applied. There was, of course, an instant last instance last year where, um, which the protester actually at the Richard Kemp lecture referred to, where Uthman Bada was barred from the University of Sydney campus. There was, of course, a, a heavily publicised incident in 2013 where the university attempted to bar the Dalai Lama from campus. The university's attempt to bar the Dalai Lama from campus was 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 extremely controversial, heavily covered by the media, covered by a range of respectable media outlets, including the New York Times, The Guardian, Huffington Post, Reuters, Australia's own ABC, which broke the story, and other media outlets too. And, of course, only a couple of weeks ago, we saw the university barring from its campus an event which was critical of ANZAC on the claim that that event would be disrupted, other activities on campus. Even if we do accept, and I think most people probably would, I know I would, that at some point you have to draw a line with what sort of speakers and speech, you know, for example, not, not promoting hate speech shouldn't be promoted at University of Sydney. University, in this, in this pattern we've seen since the barring of the Dalai Lama and the barring of Uthman Bada last year and then the barring of the ANZAC events, the event critical of ANZAC, is that the university um, typically makes reference to opaque concerns around security or disruption. Unfortunately, those calculations are actually made largely outside of public scrutiny. The evidence for a security concern or a potential disruption in those events I've just mentioned, the university barred, are typically not shown to the public. But there's real concerns that the university has been acting in an inconsistent and intransparent way. Those concerns are, of course, amplified when we see moves in government to defund universities. Because what that means is that Defunding universities can actually increase the influence and the say of private donors to university. And if the university becomes more and more dependent on these private donors, I think university is increasingly susceptible to political pressure from these same private donors. So that's another reason why university's approach to freedom of speech, I think, absolutely has to be consistent with a clearly defined definition of, of, of what is unallowed speech. That definition has to be applied transparently. How's morale at the uni? Well, university is a big place. I know that a lot of my colleagues, and you know, I work in the Centre for Peace and Public Studies, and Associate Professor Jake Lynch is the director of our centre. A lot of us have been very, very concerned. You know, and a lot of staff members outside our department, you know, across wide range of the university, you know, are often asking each other, or asking me, you know, what's what's happening with the case. You know, that it's very concerning this pattern of inconsistency and intransparency the university appears to be having regarding freedom of speech. So this sort of event. I think really does have a big impact on how people are, um, how people perceive the university's approach to, to basic intellectual freedom. And of course, intellectual freedom is the core business, the core value of any university. So the fact that this core value appears to be universities carrying out this core value appears to be embroiled in this sort of inconsistent, non-transparent incidents, I think is very concerning. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I think what I'd like to add is that this recent event, and we've seen, you know, this so, for example, the, the highlighting of the discredited accusation of anti-Semitism without the university taking serious these other serious incidents at the Richard Kemp lecture, you know, the, the assault on the two staff members, the anti-Palestinian racist attack, the potentially Islamophobic attack. Back to the university chose, particularly initially, to focus on just the accusation of anti-Semitism. I think that's part of a wider pattern to a freedom of speech and allowed conduct at the university. And, you know, as I mentioned before, that, you know, that, We've got the recent examples of when the university attempted to, to bar the Dalai Lama from speaking, and then, of course, barring Uthman Bada last year, and then barring the 
event critical of ANZAC. And I don't highlight those events because I agree with the positions of, of, of those speakers. And it's not about endorsing their own particular positions at all. It's about ensuring that the university has a consistent and transparent approach to how it applies intellectual freedom. And if we do agree, as many of us would, that we have to draw the line somewhere in terms of the sort of events that university can host, I think we have to make sure that the definition of the events that university cannot host, that, that has to be very clear. And I think that definition has to be produced in a participatory, transparent manner. And then that definition that has been produced of disallowed speech at the university then has to be applied in a transparent and consistent manner. So uh, it's very concerning that there seems to be a pattern emerging of the, the events that I've mentioned where there's a clear lack of transparency and consistency regarding this absolutely core value of any university, which is, of course, intellectual freedom and freedom of speech. Just the fact of an academic or two academics being assaulted in a university lecture hall and nothing being done about it must raise alarms. As soon as I became aware of it and then I was able to, I, I went and spoke to the security guards actually at the event itself and I said to them, this woman has just assaulted two University of Sydney staff, she needs to be removed from the lecture theatre. The fact that the security staff did not remove her and merely just gave her a warning and said, you know, if you do it again, uh, we will remove you. I mean, that was very concerning for me. And I think it's very concerning for other staff members and, and for other people at the event. No, I mean, there is something, you know, very shocking, you know, when one of your colleagues is physically assaulted, you know, very close to you. As I was leaving the lecture theatre and I was walking back to my office, in front of me, I saw Ms. Diane Barkers walking in front of me. And I said to her, I said, excuse me, your behaviour has been reported to the police. There's no excuse for violent behaviour. Words to that effect. And she actually proceeded to make a, make a physical threat towards me, a verbal physical threat, you know, to the words of, to the effect of, you know, if you don't hurry up down those steps, I'll, I'll kick you down those effing steps. So the fact that she was continuing her violent language, um, even after the event, um, was very concerning. And yeah, we really hope that the university will take the freedom of speech and the safety of their staff as a prime priority. And that was um, Paul Duffer, Duffield who's a visiting scholar at the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at Sydney University, speaking about ongoing pressure to get rid of Jake Lynch, as it seems, many people believe that, from Sydney University, and many people also not happy with the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies. Seems a strange thing that people can't cope with that, but there you go. It's coming up. Two, two minutes to five o'clock, and this is Radio 3CR, Melbourne's community radio station. The recent devastating earthquake in Nepal has caused a massive loss of life and rendered a large number of people injured and homeless. The Nepalese Earthquake Relief and Welfare Committee is providing vital support to the relief operations in Nepal. They are appealing to all Victorians for support and assistance. You can help by providing financial support, working as a volunteer, or by promoting the appeal on social media. For more information, go to 3cr.org.au or check out the Facebook page, Victorians Stand Together for Nepal. So, Fred, how are 
are we today? Uh, yeah, yeah, good. good. Mm, you've certainly got some cavities here. Oh. In 16, 27 and 36. Oh, how did that happen? Sugar overload. Oh. You're in need of H3O. What's that? H3O? Yeah. Simple. Switch sugary drinks for water for 30 days. Oh. Keep it up and you may hear less of this. Take Vic Health's H3O Challenge and switch sugary drinks for water for 30 days. Find out more at h3ochallenge.com.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. Spoken by Kate Gorman and Jeremy Hopkins. Finally on Tuesday Home Time, the second and final part of my interview with Yusuf Al-Rimawi, human rights activist, translator and presenter of 3CR's program, Palestine Remembered. Focusing on the plight of Palestinian refugees in the Middle East, and in their own country. Can you talk more about the way that the West Bank has been carved up and the way that the Palestinians are living in the different areas of the West Bank as it is today and perhaps what the West Bank was or should have been? West Bank, after sixty-seven, the next morning, Israel started changing the status quo of West Bank by planning to implant foreign elements, which takes the form of settlements. Settlements in late 60s and 70s uh, was limited or or were limited, and they were actually just the top of the hills of uh, near Nablus, for example, Ariel, and other areas of West Bank. So settlements is the biggest change of status quo of West Bank. Later on came the the specificity of Jerusalem because Jerusalem has its own uh, profile uh, within the Israeli uh, politics and they had their eye on Jerusalem uh, in creating what's called the Greater Jerusalem Municipality meaning that in 48 by controlling West Jerusalem in fact what happened is that the old city of Jerusalem, the one surrounded by the, the ancient wall, is only six square kilometers. That's it. This is Jerusalem. In forty-eight, Israel occupied five villages to the west of the wall. One of them is Deryasin, which is a massacre. They had to actually wipe out the population of that particular village. So you have Deryasin, you have Ain Karim, Al Malha, Beit Mahsir. These four or five villages became the neighborhood of what's today called West Jerusalem. In 67, by occupying the old city, they actually came up with a plan called it the Greater Jerusalem Municipality to annex West Jerusalem to the old and also to the eastern suburb and northern suburb and southern suburbs of Jerusalem. By making the natural extension of villages through roads and uh, other things impossible. For example, first, by planting settlements in the middle between uh, villages. Then, in the second intifada, checkpoints. And you know checkpoints. We're talking about permanent checkpoints or what we call flying checkpoints, temporary checkpoints. And then came the wall. The wall is the separation wall, which actually was designed and built to annex more land and to make the natural extension of villages around Jerusalem impossible. 
and from Jerusalem to Beit Lahm, and it's actually historical neighborhood. And then on top of that came another wave of settlements in Jerusalem, which is different to the mainstream settlements in West Bank. Jerusalem type of settlements is pocket, what we call pocket type uh, settlements, meaning that they occupy an apartment in a building. They occupy a roof of a building or a shop in the ground floor. It's just like pockets within Jerusalem. And then by maintaining control of this pocket, of these pockets, they make the lives of the people in this building and neighborhood impossible. Because the settlers, when we talk about ideological settlers, we're talking about those fanatics who are there for one sacred duty, and that is the promised land. And therefore, we have to get rid of everybody who is non-Jewish in this uh, neighborhood. And you can imagine the type of life. And we see that in Jerusalem and we see that in Hebron, much worse even in Hebron. So by changing these kind of realities on ground, they are actually changing it forever, let alone that uh, there are more soldiers. We're talking about half a million Israeli soldiers in West Bank today. We're talking about more than 400 permanent settlements. We're talking about the wall. We're talking about checkpoints. We're talking about soldiers and also police uh, personnel and and undercover uh, intelligence personnel. And it's actually a very polarized situation that actually it's very difficult to even imagine living under that type of rule. So this is West Bank. And then you have Gaza, which is called the biggest concentration camp in the world. Yep. And then you have Gaza. Even uh, the British Prime Minister uh, admitted that it is the biggest prison in the world, where you have nearly 2 million people surrounded uh, in 36 square kilometers. That is all. That's, uh, that's about it. And you're talking about 30% of this population is indigenous people of Gaza, the landowners of Gaza. 70% are actually refugees from uh, Al-Majdal, from Ashkelon, from uh, Yaffa, from Haifa, from etc. Israel says that we withdrew in 2005 and it's the Palestinians' responsibility of whatever happens afterwards. But Israel doesn't say that they're still control the land, the sea, and the water. Israel doesn't say that they actually wage three brutal wars. And Israel doesn't say they are limiting uh, all supplies, that they are controlling electricity supplies and water supply. And Israel doesn't say that actually it uh, fueled into the Palestinian internal division. Uh, and, 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 and therefore, leaving or withdrawing Gaza is pointless if you continue to do everything what Israel has done in the last 10 years since it withdrew. So living in Gaza, you're talking about here uh, brutal siege, poverty, unemployment, lack of water, potable water, uh, electricity blackouts. Uh, people only have electricity for a few hours per day, let alone the physical destruction of the infrastructure and buildings and actually one-third of Gaza has been destroyed in the 50-day war last year. So on top of that, you have the polarization of the Palestinian internal politics between Hamas, Hamas and Fatah. And on top of that, you have just the misery of 
living in a, a hopeless situation that the youth of Gaza can't find any hope in living there. Well, so, I'd imagine that older people couldn't either. Yep, the psychological people, stress. Psychological stress, and of course, because you are the, the 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 coherent families have become incoherent, and the society is falling apart. I don't want to draw a, tra- a tragic uh, situation, and I don't want to raise the alarm because I still have so much hope in our people's determination and steadfastness to overcome all that. But there is limit. There are limits to how far you can go. And we don't want to continue to keep pressing. We don't want to keep pressing and to push very far because the outcome will will be very tragic. And then you have another group of what you could call refugees are the people like yourself who live in countries all over the world. Is there an estimate of how many Palestinians there are living maybe in the West or mm. in Asia, in um, Europe? I'm going to give you estimations. I don't claim to have a concrete uh, answer. But the Palestinians around the world are around 11 million. The Palestinians in historical Palestine, whether in West Bank, Gaza, Israel, are about 6 million, which means that you're talking about 5 million refugees. The majority of these refugees are in Arab countries. But let's also remember the Palestinians living in the Gulf. More than 300,000 Palestinians work in Saudi Arabia. You have hundreds of thousands living in Qatar, in Bahrain, in Emirates, in Kuwait, in Oman, in the rich Arab countries. This is the economic lung of the Palestinian society. I was going to say, what sort of life do they live? They live like expatriates. And here we're not talking about refugee camps because the Gulf countries didn't feel the need to give Palestinians in their countries... The, the, the treatment of refugees because they just provided them with with access to employment and if you work you can you can support yourself you like you can have a livelihood and in fact the Palestinians in the Gulf I mean we can criticize the Gulf countries so much on their foreign policy or their corruption or their totalitarian regime or 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 but we have to give them credit for giving Palestinians access since the Nakba onwards to their employment. In fact, those who built Kuwait in the 50s and afterwards mostly were Palestinians. In fact, PLO was born in Kuwait. Yasser Arafat was an engineer, a civil engineer, and, and, and Fatah was born in Kuwait by ex-Palestinian refugee uh, expatriates in, in, in the Gulf. So without this kind of financial leverage that the Palestinians of the Gulf have, I don't think the Palestinian society will, would have been able to survive. Let me give you an example in the First Intifada. The reason the First Intifada made it to seven years and lasted for seven years is that there were enough Palestinians earning enough money in Kuwait mainly and in the Gulf. And in fact, the Palestinian community of Kuwait posed a strategic threat to the American foreign policy in the region. In, in one of the one of the documents that I remember reading, it was number six in their item after uh, the rise the rise of the Saddam Hussein uh, military power and the Iranians and whatever. Well, the Palestinian community of Kuwait were ranked six. They posed a threat to the American to the American foreign policy in the region. Why? Because thanks to the Palestinians of Kuwait, Intifada became sustainable. 
because when political parties, when PLO calls for uh, a strike, close your uh, your shop, the shop owner knows that he's got a son or brother or a father or someone in in the Gulf who can actually send them money, and therefore this they will they, the sustainability of Antifada was only possible, financially possible, I mean. Thanks to the people of Kuwait, and and by uprooting the half million Palestinians of Kuwait because of the invasion of uh, of the, the stupid decision of Saddam to invade uh, Kuwait, Antifada actually uh, lost its sense of its power. So the situation of the Palestinians in in in, in the Gulf is unique. There are of course double standards. The Palestinians are not given rights. They are not treated as refugees, but they are relatively better off than the others living in the camps. And education's been a, a big part of the Palestinian psychic. Mm. In, in, in fact, I remember what my grandfather and my father used to say. And it wasn't just like something rhetoric or romantic that they would say. It's actually a fact that this is our only asset. We have no other assets. I mean, look at me. I came from a family that had really good property in 48. We lost all that. We became refugees from both uh, father and mother uh, side. We found ourselves in refugee camps. I mean, I didn't see that because I was born uh, in, in the Saudis, but my parents did. Without education, we wouldn't have been able to do anything. We wouldn't have been able to earn any form of money because there's no social security in the Arab countries to its citizens, let alone to Palestinians. There's no United Nations money that's going to come for unemployment. So you have to earn money, and that's your only asset. And the key to earning money is education. So it's up to you if you want to survive. So education is not an accessory. Education is survival. Education, literally survival. You cannot bring food on the table without having a degree, particularly in 50s, 60s, 70s, or let's say having, having a profession. That's why the Palestinians, even if you compare them to their Arab neighborhood, we rank the first. We rank really, uh, I'm very proud of that, that Palestinians rank first in the literacy percentage among uh, its population. It's nearly 0%. Whereas the biggest Arab country, Egypt, you're talking about not less than 30% of its population are illiterates. And that's alarming, and that's huge, and that's actually greatly why Egypt is suffering from a lot of uh, political and social problems. Is it, in a sense, a, a duty for Palestinians, say, in Australia, to remit money back to Gaza, to the West Bank? Or is um, it a more, a, a, more a, a family thing or a, a thing that people do? They're not forced to do it. Solidarity. The sense of solidarity uh, is in our DNA. Without, I don't want to exaggerate. It's a family thing, actually, but also it's a country thing. But greatly supporting your own family and your family member uh, relatives is enough. I can give you an example of also my father's brothers. I mean, my father has uh, three brothers and three sisters. He's the oldest. When uh, his father retired... He became the care provider, financial care provider. And he was just 22 years old. 
And his money was just 600 Saudi reals. That's less than $200 in, of course, late 60s. And he accepted it. He didn't have to think about it. He was happy to split his uh, salary in two, like uh, 300 that it goes to Jordan. And 300, it, uh, it, it stays with me for, uh, and, 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 and he kept doing that until his younger brother, Salah, graduated. Now, having another person helping him, it means that, okay, let's, both of us now, we can share the expenses. So the burden is split or, or divided by two now. Until the third brother graduated in 79. And now, the two older brothers had a bit of relief. And then, okay, now we can divide by three. Until the fourth brother graduated in 89. And then having four brothers working, it's great and fantastic. Khalas, you don't need to worry about. Now you have to divide by four. So it's so much relief. And here, you can look at it as solidarity. You can look at it as an obligation. You can look at it as a burden. It's up to you. It doesn't change the fact that the Palestinians... The Palestinian youth have this kind of obligation towards their own family that I have to provide care, financial support, and financial support for, for the ones studying until they graduate. And then they will help me until the third one. And what happens to my family happens to 90, at least 90% of the Palestinian society. So the sense, without the sense of solidarity, we wouldn't have been able to make it through the calamities and instabilities and turbulence of the last 60 years since Nakba. We're talking about, you know, Middle East. It goes without saying that Middle East is one of the most turbulent regions in the world. Even in my lifetime, 40 years, I witnessed, I mean, if you, if you talk about the last 40 years in the Middle East, we're talking about the Islamic revolution in Iran, the Iran-Iraq war. The civil war in Lebanon, the first Intifada, the invasion of Kuwait, and then the second Gulf War, and then the uh, second Intifada, and then the peace accord, and then the invasion of, of Iraq, and then the Arab Spring. I mean, what else could can you fit in one region? How many more instabilities can one region handle? And within that, without our steadfastness, without our solidarity, Without our sense of family and, and society, we would have fallen apart, literally. It's not an exaggeration. And the solidarity from the local people here hmm. in different countries of the world, there are solidarity groups for Absolutely. Palestine, Absolutely. important. Absolutely. It is not just like a catalyst. It is a vital necessity that the solidarity, not just financial uh, support, I, I mean, I didn't mention them because I was talking about the financial aspect only. I mean, how else do you think the Palestinian cause would have survived in a country like Australia or in a country like Canada that is nearly as Zionist as Israel? Without the solidarity people from the people of Canada and Australia, without people like you, John, without people like, you know, any, any, anyone with live conscience, with free mind, with uh, just willingness to, to, to see justice prevail, the solidarity uh, from international community and from non-Palestinians particularly, it is not a late invention. We have, we have had that since the birth of our uh, problem, since forty eight. 
and we have seen uh, the translation of that into action. We have seen some of them joined our uh, political groups. I can give you, for example, uh, Carlos, uh, who joined PFLP, uh, and or even people from within the Jewish uh, Israelis who joined Fatah groups, or from Nicaragua joining uh, the the left groups. So, but joining the political parties, or supporting the civil society, or keeping the momentum alive in in their own countries in the West, this is a necessity. And this is something that we bet on. This is one of our strengths as Palestinian people and as as holders of the Palestinian cause. The right of return. I read recently that only 8% of the original people who were forced out are still alive. One of the things that the Zionists were betting on is that the first generation will die and their kids will forget. The first generation will eventually die, We are uh, and the second generation, but uh, we are not going to forget. We have not forgotten. I mean, you can see me as a third uh, generation who have never, who has never been to Palestine, or, or even the ones younger uh, than me who know what actually, what, what, what Palestine is, is about, to realize that we are not going to forget. The right of return, first of all, on practical level, it's important to highlight one thing that the majority of Palestinian refugees the majority of the five and something million refugees come from areas that are not inhabited currently in Israel at least 85% of today's refugees are from from deserted areas meaning that if they return they are not going to kick a Jewish family out only 15th percent of the Palestinians, if they return to their actual houses, that they will find a Jewish family living in. Okay, and th- that's complicated. We don't want to... But let's start by the applicable part of the story. Those who are from deserted and destroyed villages. Nobody is living there. So it is possible. And Israel wants to actually continue implanting the fear within the Jewish society or the Israeli society that it's actually impossible to allow millions of Palestinians to return because they are going to drive you into the sea and they are going to take your places and your job and your farms. It's it's just rubbish. It's a propaganda. It's It's a myth. That's number one. Number two, the Palestinian right of return is not just something in our romance or something in our dreams. It's a United Nations resolution. It's the international law. It's guaranteed by international law. Return and compensation. Another thing is that it's, it's a sacred element within the Palestinian society. But having said that, having said that, we don't want to dismiss the immediate needs of Palestinian refugees who have been waiting for that to happen. Until that happens, until the right of return happens, Palestinian refugees are entitled to decent life wherever they are. Decent life means employment. Decent life means health. Decent life means uh, education. These are things we don't have. So we cannot dismiss the immediate needs just under the slogan of right of return. And that's something I personally subscribe to. And I have spent the last seven years working for finding immediate solutions to as many Palestinians as we can 
in terms of resettling them in countries like Australia, those who fled Iraq and got stuck on the border. I was lucky to to have met wonderful people to help me, and we we were able to bring 200 people to Australia, and all of them became permanent resident upon arrival. I, I don't see this uh, a contradictory to their right of return, but I don't want to dismiss their immediate uh, needs and rights to, to decent life, especially the ones who are still babies and don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So the right of return, of course, it's one of the most important elements. One thing I'm, I'm saying to my fellow Palestinians and to my fellow pro-Palestine solidarity members is while we are in the wait, do not forget the immediate needs of Palestinians to decent life. I tried twice to return. I, I'm still a holder of a Jordanian passport. I'm not a, an Australian citizen yet. And therefore, uh, it's much more difficult for somebody like me to visit. I tried twice, and uh, I got my application declined by the Israeli uh, authorities. Maybe when I have an Australian passport, this will change, and I'm sure it will change. And it's funny that you can only visit your own country when you are viewed as a tourist, whereas Australian-born Jews have immediate and automatic right to decide when and how and actually get paid to do that, and and they will be granted uh, Israeli citizenship upon arrival. Yes, uh, I, I, I acknowledge that, but let me also tell you something. That the Palestinians, and here from a practical and realistic point of view, the Palestinians who have never been to Palestine draw an imaginary picture of Palestine because it's something that we dream about. It's something that we were told about. It's this, the, compila- the, the compilation of uh, stories and narratives and all that. And I know that in some, in, in some aspect of that, it's not real, especially that living under occupation or siege or political polarization, etc., and unemployment is very ugly. And in fact, Mahmoud Darwish, uh, our famous uh, poet, uh, described it in one of his uh, poetry and uh, described Palestine like a star. Uh, it shines for the universe, but for, for that star to shine, somebody is burning inside. The Palestinians inside are burning for the star to continue shining. And he says, Palestine uh, is like a star. And I'm not part of it. I'm, I'm not burning for that star to continue shining. I see that. But uh, until that happens, uh, I will have to rise uh, up to my obligation towards Palestine to speak about it to Australians, to help my fellow Palestinians every way I can in my capacity as translator or, uh, you know, somebody who can provide language and, and other forms of support. Uh, other Palestinians choose uh, different forms of uh, support, maybe sending money, maybe sponsoring uh, an orphan, maybe helping uh, uh, somebody to, to go to uh, school or to hospital, or also people like yourself, people from the Solidarity. We have to understand that the Palestinian cause is, is a decision. It's not just something that you fall into. It's a decision that you have to acknowledge the limitations before you even get started. You have to, for, for example, in the last 11 years, I've been uh, producing a program called Palestine. You remember here on this particular uh, radio station, 
never in my episodes uh, have I uh, spoken about the Palestinian internal division, although I have very strong views. Uh, and, and to tell you the truth, I support Fatah. Never in my own program have I made my own show or have I hijacked my own show for my own political legend because it's not about me. Yes, it is my program. It is, I am the one who founded it. I am the one who has full control on it. But I don't give myself the right to hijack my own little baby called my show towards my own political because it doesn't help the Palestinian cause. And that's something I want the rest of Palestinian advocacy or pro-Palestine members to, to understand. Detach yourself from the Palestine or the pro-Palestine camp. It's important to have a view, but do not let your view take over your platform that you are entrusted on because it carries the name Palestine. And that was Yusuf Arimami, who is the presenter of the 3CR Palestine Remembered program. He's also a human rights activist and a translator. And thanks to Yusuf for spending time with me for the program that was on air last week and also for the concluding part this week. That's all for me for this week. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Jonathan will be here in just a few moments. Bye for now.